Bill and Melinda Gates are known as the impatient optimists. Mark Sussman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is leading the organization as it goes all in on helping find ways to fight the coronavirus. And he's more than optimistic about the progress. We are pretty confident that there will be a successful vaccine, and it's going to be the fastest vaccine ever successfully developed in human history. Mark explains the science that is making him so optimistic while reminding us that the work done in global health for years prior to this helped prepare for this moment. He also tells us how it feels to be leading an organization with so much riding on its shoulders. Alongside The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute, we continue looking at America at its best. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Well, we have a really exciting opportunity today to talk to someone that's helping lead the charge against the coronavirus. Mark Sussman is CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who are putting a ton of resources behind looking for solutions right now. And we're really grateful to have a few minutes of your time, Mark. Thank you for doing this. Great. Pleasure to join. Well, the Gates Foundation has a publication called The Optimist, which we think is exactly the kind of attitude that we need right now. And we'll have time to talk about specifics of the virus and the treatments soon. But first, in general terms, at a high level, what's keeping you optimistic right now? Yes, well, we do have this publication called The Optimist, and I would encourage all your listeners to subscribe. Uh, It's a great publication and sort of sends out news on a pretty regular basis. It actually comes from uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, who are, like to call themselves impatient optimists. We, we decided not to call the publication the impatient optimist. And at times like this, it is sometimes challenging to, to feel optimistic. But on the real plus side, one, we're seeing a really unprecedented progress in terms of the search for a vaccine. That's still going to be a while, but we're A, pretty confident that there will be a successful vaccine, You know, unlike, say, with HIV, where we've struggled to find one after more than 30 years. And it's going to be the fastest vaccine ever successfully developed in human history. There are already a number of candidates in trials, but we have a lot of scientists who look at that and and feel pretty confident. And the challenge is going to be really about getting them through as quickly as possible, getting them into distribution and manufacturing and trying to make sure that they are globally accessible because this is something the world's going to need. So so that's probably the biggest uh, one on the horizon. The second one is a cautious optimism, uh, but it's also combined with a worry, uh, which is that so far we haven't seen the kind of devastation in the developing world, which we were very worried about, would follow the, uh, the levels we've seen in the U.S. and Europe. We're working very hard, and I'm going to give these are places with very low and weak health resources to try and help with preparation. We're still worried that there may be major outbreaks, but again, the steps that have been taken by these countries to date, despite their challenging circumstances, have certainly averted far worse outcomes. And that's been another bit of relatively good news. And I know that that global outlook is really important to the Gates Foundation. What are y'all doing to make sure that the work that you're doing is able to be used worldwide? Yeah, so that's something we do for everything. Like we, we work extensively across the US, obviously, and we have very large programs which are being heavily disrupted in, in uh, providing educational opportunities for low-income students and, and uh, kids of color in K-12 and post-secondary. But most of our work is in global health and global development issues. And everything we do is informed by what we call kind of global access. So we do a lot of research and development. Uh, Some of that is in health things like new treatments or 
vaccines or things of uh, diseases like malaria or uh, tuberculosis or other things that disproportionately affect poor people. And we have a requirement whenever we make grants that uh, any results are, are for global access. You know, they need to be accessible and affordable globally. And we support directly a number of organizations that help ensure that happens. So the Global Fund to Fight HIV, TB, and Malaria, uh, which was actually something where President Bush was the inaugural funder from the U.S. and, and was the counterpart to the PEPFAR uh, funding, is a huge operation that actually helps keep many millions of people on antiretrovirals, but also there's bed nets uh, across the developing world to prevent malaria, tuberculosis treatments. And what it does is it pools resources, including from the foundation and many governments, including the U.S., which is the largest funder, and then helps purchase those at bulk because it uses price of that and then distribute them to the neediest globally. And we have other partnerships that do the same in areas like vaccines. And so I know that's an area that we've worked together on before is in is in global health. We had Bill and Melinda Gates recently at our forum on leadership for them to talk about the work that they've done. And y'all have done a lot of work with global epidemics previously, like in global health, you've been very active. What did you learn from the work that you'd done previously that's helping you today? Yeah, so some of it is, is pretty simple stuff, Like right? You need basic functional primary health care systems. That, that may sound simple, and, and we're kind of used to it because most people can access at least uh, minimal basic health here in the U.S. effectively. But uh, you know, in very poor countries, that means often there's barely a, a sort of clinic with basic equipment or tools. But we need to that. We make a lot of investments in trying to support those kind of efforts because if you have accessible primary care that's able to take early action, then that helps prevent a whole lot of further health outcomes. And in the current COVID crisis where you're trying to uh, provide community engagement or involvement to help support challenges where you're often working in situations like crowded urban slums where it's very difficult to sort of isolate if you have symptoms. We've seen countries like South Africa, for example, which have extensive networks uh, that have been set up to deal with their HIV crisis, actually being able to mobilize those network to help support COVID. Or Similarly, one of the challenges we have, we are the largest funders globally. The U.S. is also a very generous uh, supporter of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. That, unfortunately, has had to be put on pause for a while because we can't currently vaccinate uh, children because it's the opposite of social distancing. Uh, malaria, uh, yeah. Polio vaccine, excuse me, is a drops that need to be put in the mouth of a baby that's held by their parents. But we had big infrastructure that we've developed uh, with other partners over the years, uh, including UNICEF and the World Health Organization and Rotary, that is very expert at surveillance and tracking and tracing uh, things, which can now again be used and adapted to COVID. So we've had a lot of those kinds of lessons, uh, which we wish we didn't have to have learned them to help, but there certainly are helping with the current crisis. You know, we're talking a lot about Africa and some of these other developing regions in the world. How do you, from your perspective, what, what do you think is the best way, while we're all struggling in our own home, to convince people that it is important to take a global viewpoint, that we can't just focus on what's happening right here, right now, but we also have to look at all the nations of the world. In some ways, this disease is, is sort of the best uh, at doing it because it is global. It does affect every human being on the planet. In fact, you know, it's, it's probably the first event uh, of any of our lifetimes that is literally affecting every person, either directly or indirectly because of the socioeconomic impacts. And we simply will not be able to get back to any kind of quote-unquote normal 
until we actually have some global solutions, because otherwise the virus will keep circulating. You'll just have a wide range of challenges. You, you won't be have the same kind of international travel infrastructure or trade infrastructure. So it's just a simple fact that what, whatever uh, we're doing in our own communities, and that's all critically important, and obviously we're doing a, a lot in the U.S. as well, and particularly here in our uh, home where I'm talking to you from in Seattle and, and King County, where we've been providing a lot of direct support uh, to the effort, is there just won't be a solution until the world has able to tackle it, because otherwise it's going to keep spreading and coming back and having you know little outbursts or or other challenges, which will have a knock-on effect on on the United States and every community in the U.S. And so it's it's a real call to action. We we need to do whatever we can uh, nationally and in our own communities, but it has to be a global solution, or there won't be a solution. You know, you said early that early on in this conversation, that this will be the fastest vaccine discovery in history. And, you know, that's wonderful to hear. And why do you think that will be the case? Like, what do you, what is giving you the confidence to say that? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. At one level, and uh, recognize that I'm speaking not as a scientist, but we employ lots of very good scientists who educate me daily. But one of the encouraging things about the coronavirus is that it is relatively stable. You know, I mean, a stable, a stable virus means it's easier to develop the tools to then attack it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't have that uh, in, in many other, uh, is, you know, flu is more challenging. That's why flu vaccines are more difficult. Uh, HIV right. is more challenging. But actually, it looks like coronavirus should be more receptive. So that's one. The second is that mm-hmm. the tools and techniques we have available with modern science are just better than they've ever been. We were able to understand the genetic structure of the coronavirus within days. That allows a vastly accelerated series of steps where you can take and look at existing compounds, uh, which are existing drugs or treatments or vaccines, and experiment with how effective they might be. So in essence, we're massively accelerating uh, Mm -hmm. what used to take many, many months and years, we're able to compress into much shorter periods of time. And that's allowing us to move things through the so-called phases. All vaccines or drugs have to go through uh, three broad phases of, of clinical trials to test that, that, that they are what we call safe and efficacious. One, do they make sure they don't do any inadvertent harm? Are they safe for people? They don't have side effects or other? And are they efficacious? Do they do the job they're needed to, which is uh, prevent you getting the illness? And We've already got several candidates in the so-called phase one trials, which is a, and even moving into phase two, which is to wider groups and communities. And so we may have some of the more successful ones getting some pretty robust results by the summer. Now, the reality is normally about 95% of uh, vaccine trials fail in the end. You know, it's, it's complicated. Something goes wrong. There's a weird side effect or something we didn't realize, but we've got enough strong candidates going in doing enough different types of trying to attack the virus that, again, we feel relatively confident that at least one of them, and hopefully a couple of them, will prove effective relatively quickly. So all of those are, in the the, great world of medical science, is all really good news and means that something that normally would take five to 10 years really can be compressed down into nine to 18 months. Well, and part of it too has got to be that every scientist seemingly is working on this right now. So you've got the whole world mobilized in a single direction, right? 
absolutely. I mean, that has challenges as well, because what you do, if you just need to look at my inbox and my money, and I, <laughs> I have the overnight uh, thing with people who've guessed my email and want to send me their instant cure for COVID, that if only the Gates Foundation would support it right now, uh, they would do it. So how you weed out the sensible and the smart from uh, the thing is, but you know, in essence, that's a good challenge, because Yes, you do have a lot of very smart minds and people in private industry, from academia, from government, uh, all turning their attention to this and working as hard as they can. The Gates Foundation is blessed to have some resources, thanks to Bill and Melinda Gates and to Warren Buffett, but it's not a magic, endless pile of resources. And so how do you, as CEO, help steer where you're going to focus these resources, both in terms of, is it a treatment? Is it a vaccine? Is it um, how do you support still the education work that's important to you? How do you make sure that countries everywhere are getting help? How do you steer these resources? Yeah, it's a great question. and something uh, we really think hard about every day because it's something that Bill and Melinda and Warren, as you say, Warren Buffett very generously funds us as well, uh, push us very hard to say you've got to think what the comparative advantage of philanthropic capital is. We're a distinctive kind of capital. We should never be displacing or substituting for work that the private sector or government could or should do better. But what we can mm -hmm. do is be catalytic in a different ways. We can move much faster than government. You know, we can put funding out you know, within 24 hours. And so on. We can take bigger risks. Uh, we can take risks on riskier treatments we can, because, again, we don't have to go back and be accountable to taxpayers or, or others and say, sorry, we, we wasted your money on this big thing that failed, that it, to some degree, that's easier for us. And so when it comes to this crisis, you know, for example, our very first wave of money went into actually trying to help provide testing for uh, African countries way back in late January, uh, before because at that time, only two countries in Africa even had the capacity to test. And so we provided quick funding to the African Centers for Disease Control, which were able to then provide training and testing across the rest of the continent in time, which we believe has helped contribute to, to a much less devastating uh, epidemic on the continent to date. Similarly, we were able to be the first funders and set up something actually with the support of another charity called the Wellcome Trust, a UK charity, something we call the Therapeutics Accelerator, which is almost like a virtual, but we would be able to put it up and say, let's take a look at potential treatments. Therapeutics are basically things can make you better that we want before we get to the vaccine. And we were able to then crowd in a bunch of additional money from other philanthropies like the Dell Foundation, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and now starting to get some support from some governments like the United Kingdom. And again, we then, we don't add significant resources there. We put core money into it. We help set it up. But now we're able to crowd in other resources that hopefully will let us do a much faster treatment. So we're always looking for, is there something we can do that's going to help leverage or support or be a public good for, for other players? Because our resources alone will never be enough, as you say. We really appreciate you spending time talking about the coronavirus. Another thing that the Bush Institute is passionate about, though, is leadership. And so I want to spend a minute talking about you personally. We've had a chance to talk to people with some really big jobs on this show. And you're, this has got to be one of the biggest. Do you wake up in the morning and really feel the weight of the world on your shoulders? You haven't been CEO very long, I understand. And you're on the forefront of trying to find a cure for a disease that's, that's killing people. How do you deal with that personally every day? Yeah, so it's a combination at one level. Yes. I mean, I, 
do wake up and oh my god what what way well, actually it's always looking by me because we are a global organization and so overnight my email inbox will have filled up with you know lots of updates from india and africa and other things other people have woken up way earlier than us on the west coast of the u.s and uh, it does feel like a, a significant responsibility but it also frankly it, it's um and what the word is it, you know, energizing because it does feel that at a time of crisis, global crisis, the tools and expertise that we've developed over the last 20 years actually has deep relevance for the current moment. And that that is kind of, uh, it, it sort of helps give energy and momentum. I think it inspires our staff. Uh, and it does ensure a sort of a feeling of responsibility and accountability back to towards how do you make choices? You know, make, uh, how do we make sure we are making the smartest possible choices because they're very impactful and weighty? But that feeling of, of relevance and an ability to contribute actually is very motivating as well. well and you're also, as CEO, you're, you're not just making these decisions, but you also have to keep a large staff motivated and, uh, that's now working remotely, I'm assuming. And they have, they're feeling a similar weight. What's your leadership approach to keep everybody moving forward and feeling strong as, as we sprint for what feels like a very long time? Yeah. So I think all leaders are struggling with that. I mean, there's, there's no uh, model. No one had a script in their back pocket for what to do when every employee around the world suddenly has to work from home. In fact, this week, we had our annual employee meeting. This is the one time a year. Normally, we actually bring everybody. We have offices in India, China, across several African countries, in Europe. Uh, we have a big Washington, D.C. office. We have staff all over the U.S. And this is the one time of year we normally bring them all together to hear from me and Bill and Melinda and normally Warren Buffett. So we obviously weren't able to do that this week. And so we had our first ever remote annual employee meeting where I was speaking from my basement. But what we really <laughs> tried to do was uh, give people a sense and an insight and share what the foundation's doing. We look back at our history. It's actually our 20th anniversary as a foundation. We uh, had a couple of, of sort of interviews uh, with key players globally working on the issue. We had interviews with key staff members, just short ones working on different elements of the crisis to help people feel connected so they could see they're all part of a big organization, whether you're working in finance or HR or IT or facilities or on completely different aspects of work that, that don't have as immediate an impact on COVID. You know, here's how your part of a foundation is laddering up to this. Here's why the rest of our work all remains important. You mentioned education, but Obviously, our U.S. education team is working overtime because we're deeply worried that the current situation with everyone home from school is actually going to widen education divides in the U.S. seriously. And so can we leap in and be smarter about online learning tools and other things, which are things we've been working on for a long time? So trying to just draw those connections, making people feel part of the wider foundation and visibility into everything we do and their own connection, and then try to motivate them back to whatever their day job is, they still need to do it. Here's why it's critically important. You know, you mentioned education. That's actually one of the things I wanted to talk about next. You know, you mentioned that it could widen the gap. And we already see that the, the most vulnerable populations in the US and worldwide are often the ones that struggle to get education, which is perpetuates the cycle. What work are you doing now to try and keep that from happening even further as this is happening? One thing we always do is, is data. So we, we, are, we have launched a number of initiatives just to try and track what's uh, going on. Certainly some of the early data I've seen, for example, on completion of math courses or something, see some quite dramatic declines. And when you break them down by school districts and other related things, you see they're disproportionately happening in poorer school districts. 
And that's in some way not a surprise because these are often families, they, they might not have access to Wi-Fi or computers. The faculty at these schools or uh, community colleges don't have the same ability to move rapidly into online courses or other related things. Your family situation may be less uh, able to do that. So what we've been trying to do, because it's a little bit uh, wild west, you know, is maybe not quite the right term, but there are so many different aspects. If you go on and Google homeschooling or something, you're going to get dozens of thousands of different kinds of tools without any triaging about, well, what's really most effective? What works? What's uh, sort of useful for depending on whatever your skill sets are? So we've been doing a number of initiatives with other partners to try and come together and you know, help identify, you know, here is a sort of almost a validating thing for the, the best tools under the current circumstances, the best courses, the best frameworks. And then we're also looking at specific initiatives. For example, we have a you know a scholarship program, the Gates Millennium Scholars, uh, that that we run, and we've been trying to address the needs of those individual students as well. Uh, we've been looking at financial aid issues uh, for post-secondary uh, in, in college because we're expecting to see a big spike in an inability to pay for college. And we have an initiative we've been supporting, which will come with its conclusions in a couple of months called the Value Commission, which has been trying to look at the sense of value of our uh, post-secondary education and and those financial connections. So it's it's challenging, definitely. And Mm -hmm. especially uh, now we're seeing some big colleges, for example, already declaring they won't open for classes in the fall. We're not sure what the longer-term knock-on impact of that is going to be, but starting with it, it cannot be good news. The real risk is it will widen gaps significantly, and we really need to take action to try and minimize that. We've just touched on the surface of the things that the Gates Foundation is working on, and obviously you, you clearly are very well-versed in all of them. You've been at the Gates Foundation for a very long time. Was there anything in particular in your in your time up to this point that really made you realize, boy, I'm I'm ready for this challenge and I'm prepared now? Uh, I'm not sure you ever feel completely prepared. You know, there's, there's a you need a, a bit of an edge every day to just that challenges you and make sure you're you're not complacent. Uh, in fact, Warren Buffett likes to say, and and when I met him shortly before taking on the role. He, he warned me about his ABCs, which are uh, his ABCs for big organizations like us are arrogance, bureaucracy, complacency. And mm. I always think about those. Those are things that it's very easy to become accidentally susceptible uh, to. Yeah. So I don't think there was a particular moment per se where I looked at it, but it's just as I had growing roles, as I went through the foundation, I had steadily increasing uh, roles and responsibilities that, that allowed me to have sort of insight and work across a growing range of our work, initially globally and then domestically. I had two roles previously, one as chief strategy officer and the second as, as president of our global policy and advocacy division. And the two together, I think when we, we have these annual strategy reviews with Bill and Melinda, where we basically go over each of the areas we work with, it's HIV AIDS, whether it's K-12 education, whether it's uh, agricultural development in poor countries. And we go over the strategies and we look at their weaknesses and strengths and we you know, look at what their metrics are, what are their goals for the year, and that's when we assess their budget. And I think probably last year's strategy reviews, when we went through all of them, you know, we realized that, yeah, I have a very good sense of the overall strengths and weaknesses of the foundation. I have a good sense of 
uh, back to your core question, where I think our comparative advantages are and where we should set them. That's not the same as knowing you can do the job. As I say, I wake up every day making sure that you know I don't get because that would that would trip you straight into the arrogance part of Warren's ABCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to keep an open mind and always be aware of of what you're doing wrong. But I think having that full sense of understanding of the range of our work and what the real strengths of philanthropy can and should be vis-a-vis those other partners is uh, what really helps me do the job. We don't want to take up too much of your time, but we do want to ask you one last question that we ask a lot of our guests before they go home. And what are we not talking enough about as a nation that we should be talking about? And I think you have a little bit of a unique perspective here in that um, maybe some folks out there have noticed that you, you don't have a Texas accent like some of us here in Dallas do. And uh, you, you're from uh, South Africa, right? Yes. Yeah. Given this global perspective, what should we be talking about more that we're not talking enough about? Well, I think there are um, two things that, that I, well, both of which we're starting to talk about, but uh, is that one is really about that sense of human solidarity, you know, that, that my hope, even with all the challenges and fears of this current moment, is you know, the Gates Foundation believes strongly, and it's carved in our building, that every person deserves the chance to a healthy and productive life. That's, that's our mission and vision. And that means every person in the United States and across the world, and that having a proper discussion about what the kind of society we want to build as a nation in the U.S., but as part of a global family where the U.S. is still you know, the most important global leader. I worry a little bit that we've become uh, so inward looking in the discussions that you lose sight of that big picture. So that would be one. The second, uh, which is a, a learning curve I've gone on myself uh, during my time at the foundation, is you know, understanding and respecting the importance of science and research and development and that and how important it is at a moment where the world is massively relying on that. I think that's an area, again, that uh, we, as a, even though we've been generous funders, have been underfunding relative to what has been needed. It's been highlighted. And I think that's a, a sort of really important just discussion for people to have, whether it's, you know, putting science and our own uh, thoughts and lives and our families and our kids' education, but also what we do as a country in terms of funding and supporting and, you know, try to keep, maintain and, and build on uh, the amazing track records that the U.S. has on that regard. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're definitely on the same page on that first point, especially where President Bush has often spoken about warning against protectionism and isolationism and that this is that we're in a global community, whether we like it or not, that's, that's the world we live in. And you can't, you can't hide from that. Yeah, well, that's something the coronavirus has demonstrated very in very devastating fashion, and I hope we take the right lessons out of it. Mark, thank you again so much. We know you're incredibly busy. We'll let you get back to your inbox and keep tackling the world's problems. But again, thank you so much for spending this time. This was really interesting. Great. Really happy to, and uh, you know, congratulations on all your great work too, and uh, I hope we can continue to find some ways to partner going forward. Guarantee that we will. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. Subscribe to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's publication, The Optimist, at www.gatesfoundation.org slash The Optimist. And be sure to read the America at its best issue of The Catalyst at www.bushcenter.org slash catalyst. If you enjoy this episode of The Strategist, please share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.